0: My primary introduction to remote viewing is when I was on the uh, government program back in the 1980s when it was still secret, on using remote viewing for espionage.
1: Is that is that the uh, is that the uh, Project Stargate?
0: Forms of this experiment was called an Outbounder test, where if you were the remote viewer, you first of all would be sequestered in a shielded room, and you don't you don't know anything else about the experiment. Welcome to the Evan
1: Weiss Show, broadcasting from the West Coast, raw, in-depth, and relentlessly hacking the mainframe. Here's Evan Weiss. Hello, Dean Raiden. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. What part of the country are you in, by the way? I'm in Boise, Idaho. Boise, Idaho. I heard a lot of really nice things about that place. I've, I've been to uh, Quarterlane, Idaho. Have you been there?
0: Uh, I have not. Uh, We actually moved here uh, a couple of weeks before the the pandemic. Oh, wow. And so uh, I only know the grocery store, (laughs) and I know where the hospital is, and that's about it. Uh, We're now at 3,000 feet, whereas before we were at about three feet altitude. (laughs) Uh, And we have four very clear and distinct seasons here, which you didn't get so much in
1: California. Okay, so I'm going to go straight into the questions. And my first question is, what is telepathy?
0: Telepathy is a label that has been used to indicate uh, that minds uh, connect in some way at a distance. So, it's just a label of the experience itself,
1: okay. So yeah, I always hear these words uh, together, like telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, psychokinesis. Are, how are these things related? And how are they different? And how do they work together?
0: Well, I think most uh, most researchers today think that they're all basically the same underlying phenomenon, but they have different labels because the labels are based on the experiences as they're described by people. so okay. they're they're not separate they're not different things really they're just different ways that the same thing can manifest
1: okay and i know i know you're the chief scientist at the institute of noetic sciences and what do you what do you guys do there exactly
0: noetic is a word that refers to a kind of intuition where you know with certainty that your intuition is correct and later hmm. you check it and it turns out it was correct oh. so intuition is knowing something without knowing how you know it. And so there's several different flavors of that. One is uh, forgotten knowledge. Mm-hmm. So you, you've learned something and you learn learned it so well that you don't even remember how you know it anymore. Uh, and so it's an unconscious form of knowledge. So you can make a decision or do something or take some kind of action, not really knowing cognitively, why you took that action, but it's because of this past experience that you have. So that's one form. The other form, though, is what we're interested in, where you make a decision or you get an impression about something and you don't have prior knowledge. So it's not something that you are remembering unconsciously or can figure out. It's something that seems to come from somewhere else.
1: Interesting. So it's kind of like knowing something without... Knowing it consciously, for lack of a better word, really. but um, can people remember past experiences?
0: Are you talking about past lives?
1: Well, uh, I sort of I mean, I, I guess you could say that, yeah.
0: Well, whenever this kind of question is is broached, the uh, there's two kinds of answers. One is, do people report? that they felt that they had a past life or they remember something that clearly wasn't part of their current life. Yeah. People report that. Okay. Is it true? Is it an entirely different issue? Hmm. And this by the way is across the board for any kind of psychic experience that somebody may talk about. There's a big difference between people's experience of what happened and whether or not there's first of all, a way to test it. Is, is it really true? Uh, And second, uh, what what do those kinds of tests tell us then about the kinds of experiences that people report? So when it comes to something like a past life experience, is there a way to test it? Well, the only way that we would know is if information is obtained that you can then go and check to see if it's correct, but also information that you couldn't have known before. And so there are very, very few cases where somebody feels in some way or the other that they had a past life, which is then checkable and turns out to be true that the person could not have previously known.
1: Very few cases. Now, Dean, are thoughts things?
0: Well, there's certainly things in the sense that we have words for them. You, you just use the word, uh, so it's a thing in that sense. Uh, so we're talking about can it do something? Yes. Well, certainly within the body, your the mind body connection is very tight and and so your thoughts and beliefs will definitely have a, an effect on your body but that's probably not what you mean so uh, you mean it's and something like a psychokinetic effect occur where you want something outside of your body yes. to be affected in some way correctly and so there it's a testable question and there've been many tests over the years to see whether your attention or intention can change aspects of the physical world and the answer the short answer is apparently yes
1: can others sense the emotions of others whether they're present or whether they're far away
0: so that is a a combination of experiments involving telepathy and then a whole other class of experiments uh, that has the acronym dmils dmils which stands for direct mental interactions with living systems as, like in any science, we always love to make up new jargon. so <laughs> our our jargon is des. Uh-huh. So a deMail experiment, uh, one style of it is uh, sensing the feeling of being stared at.
1: So yes, this, yes. I felt that.
0: and so what we typically do in testing these kinds of experiences, which are pretty commonly reported, is figure out a way to test it in a laboratory in such a way that we can tell that if somebody is sensing, somebody else is staring at them, that it's not due to uh, peripheral vision, it is not doing to subliminal hearing or to other kinds of cues. In other words, we exclude all the normal ways that you might guess that somebody's staring. And the way to do that is you put the person being stared at into, at least in our case and a few other um, laboratories that have done this, you put the stared at person inside a shielded room where, in our case, we use an electromagnetically shielded room, which is solid steel, double-walled uh, floors and ceilings and, and uh, so on, and then electromagnetically grounded, so that when the, the door is closed, the external world, for all intents and purposes, is gone, okay. at least from, from an electromagnetic perspective and, to a large extent, acoustic as well. So it's a, a nice way of isolating someone. And then at a distance... Uh, In our case, it was a matter of around 30 meters away in a different portion of the building. And we did extensive testing to see whether uh, the person inside the chamber could hear something from the outside or uh, be electrically stimulated and all kinds of ways to see is there any normal connection between the two, and the answer is no. And then through a a fiber optic connection, you can Take the video image of the person inside the chamber and send it over to where the the sending person, the staring person was. And then in a protocol where every uh, 30 seconds or so, somewhat, some randomness put in there, but about every 30 seconds on the the video monitor in the starers room, the face of the staree would pop up. Hmm. And it would pop up and maybe stay there for 20 to 30 seconds. And then it would go away. You'd have a blank screen. So the instructor of the person staring is that when the face appears, direct all of your attention and intention and stare like crazy at the person, at the person's face, who is the one who's isolated at a distance. And meanwhile, for the person who who is the staree, we're recording their physiology. We're recording skin conductance and heart rate, and and uh, respiration and things like that. We're measuring Do
1: you guys measure brainwaves?
0: We have done experiments using EEG as well. Okay. So the the hypothesis here is that when you're intently staring at someone, or in this case, you are literally seeing their video image, does the physiology of the person being stared at, does it show an arousal effect? Are you activating their physiology? And the short answer is yes. So there have been our lab and in, uh, about a half a dozen other labs around the world that have done this kind of experiment. And we do see that there is sympathetic nervous system arousal in the person being stared at under conditions when they have no idea when the other person is actually looking at them. So the, the, short, then the that was a long answer to your question, which is yes.
1: Yes, but how does, how does a body sense that someone's looking at them if they're not looking at them?
0: Well, so now you're asking how does it work? Yes. And, and the the short answer there is we don't know. Hmm. We So here's where we can separate uh, empiricism, which is what we do. We test ideas against theory, which is trying to describe the mechanism, uh, the underlying mechanism as to how this can happen. So because of the way we do the experiment, we're pretty confident that it's not an electromagnetic effect and it's not any of the other known forces. So then the question is, well, if it's not, an existing physics, then what is it? Well, this go, the same kind of uh, reasoning then goes into basically all of the different psychic phenomena because they're only considered strange for for one basic reason that somehow there are things that are connected that are distant in space and time. That's true for all psychic phenomena, and so what do we know from a physics perspective where things could be connected through space and time that are not involved in normal forces? The only thing we know of today is quantum entanglement.
1: Oh, spooky action at a distance?
0: Yes, spooky (laughs) action at a distance. So we know that is a fact. We, We still don't know even from a physics perspective why it's a fact. We have mathematics that describe it, but when you ask these really fundamental questions in physics, we don't know why things are. Like we don't know why photons are exactly the way they are, or electrons or any other elementary particle. We don't know why, and, and in many ways, science really can't answer why questions. <laughs> we We can answer questions about how things behave. right We can see regularities in the world. That's what ba- builds up our physics. But the why questions are almost outside the domain of of what science is capable of of answering. So I would say there's there's two. Two leading theories, two working hypotheses, let's say, uh, for how, why these things work. First, it might, in fact, have something to do with quantum entanglement. We, we don't know exactly how that would work because in living systems, we don't see a lot of quantum entanglement yet, but it's conceivable because every physical thing is ultimately, at
1: bottom, a quantum system. Right. And so, and so some uh, think that it kind of scales up to, to where we're at.
0: Right, and so there's increasing evidence in quantum biology that living systems do have properties that require quantum mechanics in order to work right. So that may also be true within humans, but we don't have good evidence for that yet. So what we can say then is maybe it has something to do with quantum mechanics. It kind of looks like that, but we don't. We can't really point to that and say, yeah, this is definitely it. The other approach is to, is to question. underlying assumptions in most of modern science which is which is called materialism it's a a way a philosophical way of thinking about how things work so materialism makes the assumption that everything is made out of matter and energy and uh, based on that if you if you now work through the logic of how is it that minds can have this capacity or minds and bodies can have the capacity you pretty rapidly come up to a wall where you basically have no idea and this is one of the reasons why from a mainstream perspective many scientists would say that these kinds of phenomena even though we can demonstrate them in the lab are literally impossible they would say that it violates what we know about science so the fact is that these phenomena are fact-like like we can show that they exist so We have incompatibility between what people believe is possible versus we can show that it's possible. So that means there's a flaw somewhere in our assumptions about the way that reality works. So you go looking for another philosophy. Well, the other primary philosophy is the flip side of materialism called idealism. And the difference is that rather than assuming that everything starts with matter and energy and idealism, it is assumed that everything starts with consciousness. And from that perspective, it means that everything having to do with awareness and consciousness is prior to meaning more fundamental than the physical world of matter and energy. So you work from that perspective and you say, well, how is it possible that our consciousnesses are connected at a distance? The answer is it's obvious because consciousness, it comes before ideas like, like matter, energy, space or time in which case it's of course consciousness is connected at a distance because it comes before even the concept of distance there's some kind of universal consciousness field or something like that so from a slightly not slightly but a dramatically different philosophical basis uh, you can see that it's actually fairly easy to describe why these kinds of phenomena exist and one of the reasons why idealism is not currently fashionable is because Many people think that if that were true, we'd have to throw away everything we know about science, start over again. And people aren't willing to do that, and there's good reason for that, that it's science works really well. The way I, I get around that objection is to simply point out that it's true materialism is really good as a way of understanding reality, but it doesn't explain everything, and it completely fails when trying to understand the the our subjective nature the nature of consciousness itself so rather than throwing materialism away we just say well materialism is really good in certain contexts it is a special case of a more comprehensive way of understanding reality which is accommodated better by idealism rather than materialism
1: on that subject what is what is really the concept of entangled minds
0: well that was kind of a play on words in the sense that telepathy seems as though minds are entangled, like like mm-hmm. tangled, tangled up string. They're like okay. in- interacting, intertwined in some way, and the idea of quantum entanglement. So my book that had that title, Entangled Minds, was all about uh, the physics that might be involved in these kinds of phenomena.
1: Uh, have you done any tests on remote viewing?
0: Well, my my primary introduction to remote viewing is when I was on the uh, government program back in the 1980s when it was still secret on using remote viewing for espionage, part of the government.
1: Is that the uh, Project Stargate?
0: Today it is known as Stargate, but it had many code, code words over the years. Okay. And I was on it okay. when the code word was called grill flame. So it was one of the, one of the many projects. Oh, interesting. So I had read about it before. I mean, remote viewing and clairvoyance are the same thing. So I'd read about clairvoyance tests and the classic ones involved ESP cards back in the 19, uh, 1880s to about 1940s. ESP cards were the method that was used. Uh, but starting in the 50s and more in the 60s and up to today, uh, different methods are used, which are, which provide much better results than card tests. So remote viewing is, as a slightly different Twist to clairvoyance in that it is uh, thought to be a partially trainable uh, phenomenon. You go through a, a series of structured steps in order to help help you uh, describe something at a distance. But the but the underlying phenomenon is basically the same as clairvoyance. Okay. So one of the earliest forms of this experiment was called an outbounder test, where. If you were the remote viewer, you first of all would be sequestered in a shielded room and you don't, you don't know anything else about the experiment. And meanwhile, experimenters would have chosen five possible locations to send your friend. So the friend would be outbound to one of these five locations, which was chosen at random. So you send the person to one of these five locations. You tell them when they go to the location to take photographs and make sketches and things to kind of, uh, increase your attention about being in that place so now a different experimenter goes who doesn't know anything about this uh, goes to the uh, the person who's the remote viewer in the shielded area and says okay your friend has gone somewhere Uh, make make a sketch about your impressions about where they are and so that's all that they know inside the shielded room that the friend went somewhere and you're the remote viewer and you have to figure out where they are Well, you can't figure out where they are because you don't have any idea where they are. So you have to use something like clairvoyance to gain impressions about where that person is. So the term remote viewing sort of suggests that you're seeing through their eyes. You're viewing through the eyes of the distant person, the outbounder. So you would make a sketch and you write down things where you impressions about where you think they are. And then that is taken. A transcript is made. And it's given to a judge. Judge doesn't know anything about what's going on here other than I have a transcript with some sketches on it, and I have pictures of the five possible places where the outbounder might have gone. And my job as a judge is to match the impressions to one of those five places. So that's a very simple remote viewing test. And in that case, your chances of getting right is one in five. You would just guess by chance. You get a 20% hit rate. So those experiments have been done. There's something like 1,500 that have been published, 1,500 sessions like that. And overall, it's very, very clear that that good remote viewers, meaning people are talented, can indeed get way beyond a 20% hit rate. So the odds against chance is basically a gazillion to one against chance that the impressions that they're getting while they're in a shielded place matches the actual place that the outbounder went better than it does the other four possible places.
1: Wow. That's, that's incredible. How, how were you able to determine whether a person was, was better at, than other people at, at being able to identify the places where, for example, their friends were, um, did they have certain physical characteristics or uh, hi- a certain history or, or a certain ability that was obvious?
0: Well, this this is a good question. The the easy way to tell is their by their performance. Okay. Some people will simply be better than others. So that's the easiest way to select people. Okay. And usually, what happens is you you do an experiment with a large room full of people, and they would all try to to get impressions about some target. Could have been a hidden photograph or something like that. And you will typically find that generally, uh, a few people out of a hundred will will apparently show some talent. And then you run those people that were selected a couple more times. And by doing that kind of sifting process, you can tell by the performance who's really talented and who's not. But what you're really asking is, are they different genetically? Mm-hmm. Do they have different personalities? Yes. All that sort of stuff. Well, back when the, the government program was running, there was an enormous amount of effort taken to see if, if they could find something because it would make it a lot easier to select People In that case, mostly from the army, by giving them a questionnaire or doing something, something about them that would give you a, a, a leg up on selecting people who probably had talent. Nothing was found. Nothing different was found from those people uh, for, versus people who were talented. So what it came down to at the time was basically asking about people's experience Have you ever had an experience where you felt like you knew what was happening at a distance or an experience of telepathy or something like that? And are you shy about talking about it? In other words, you're you're willing to talk about it. And uh, would you be willing to participate in experiments? So when you do that kind of sifting, just those couple of questions, you can pretty rapidly get rid of people who may have had experiences, but they don't like to talk about it. Uh, And also people who never had such experiences, you end up with people who are probably talented and you do a couple of tests with them and pretty quickly can find people who have at least a little talent. And sometimes you're lucky and find people with a lot of talent. Right. Uh, As to other factors, so that was 30 years ago. uh, We have much more sophisticated methods now, both in neuroscience and neuroimaging and increasingly now in genetics. Where we're beginning to see that there might actually be some morphological differences in the brain, some genetic differences and maybe some personality differences, which also give you a leg up on choosing who is likely to be talented versus not.
1: Interesting. Interesting. It'd be interesting also uh kind of track their lives and see if they're more successful at certain situations than others.
0: Yes. So we, we have talked to people who are successful in business and the entertainment world and a few other places. Uh, if they are willing to talk about their experiences, then more often than not, they will, they will admit that their intuitions are generally very good. They are good at being in the right place at the right time. Uh, they somehow make things happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, they may or may not even think about these kinds of abilities as psychic you might think of it as luck or who knows what, the grace or something like that. But when tested, if if they are, first of all, they have to admit that they think this is the case. If they're tested, they generally will do better. And there was this great study done in the 1970s uh, among executives in the large companies where each of the executives uh, took a, a simple precognition test. And then later, they com- they did a correlation between the performance on the precognition test versus the profit in their companies. And there was a significant positive correlation. So people who showed a precognition ability, even within a pretty simple test, actually were doing better in their jobs than people who, d- who did not have that skill.
1: Very, very fascinating. Why are things that are not understood, you think, relegated to the category of paranormal or magical?
0: That's, that's a good question. I said that, that definitely happens a lot. Um, I think part of the, the reason is that we feel uncomfortable if there's a phenomenon that we can't explain. This is particularly true among scientists. Scientists always want to know why something happens. What the, me- what's the mechanism of why this happened? And at the leading edge of science, which is full of things we don't understand, in most cases, we don't know yet how it works but there's a natural inclination among a lot of people that they simply won't believe something unless we have an explanation for it. So that's that's part of the issue, especially when it comes to psi experiences, because they're so common, they happen all the time, that it's much easier for someone to say, well, the, the reason why people talk about telepathy and these things is because they don't understand the way the probability and coincidence works. So it's all based on probability. It's like this is a way of explaining some of the experiences and some of that explanation is true so if you take take the huge amount of anecdotes of things that happen to people that seem spooky and you you can go through a kind of a due diligence list of possible explanations for these and i would estimate that around 50 percent of experiences that people have psi experiences can be described as a form of coincidence things happen There are billions of people on on the earth. Each person has uh, several thousand things that happen per day. And you figure out the probabilities of weird things happening, like winning the lottery. Something strange is going to happen to somebody every day. Probably multiple people multiple times per day, just from a probabilistic perspective. That's why a large percentage actually do have that as an explanation, and then other explanations include things like confabulation, which is mis- misremembering things, hmm. sometimes fraud because it's easy to take advantage of people.
1: <laughs> do do people mix this in sometimes with religion, like miracles and things like that?
0: Yeah, and it's it, it's kind of in the same class. Uh, so, from if you put on your your scientist hat, uh, scientists are basically taught that these things don't exist, even though they have the same experiences they will look for a more mundane explanation. And so, as I said, you go through this due diligence list and you'll end up with any large group of anecdotes with about 5% of them that don't fit any of the usual models. It's like it's not coincidence, it's not psychopathology, it's not confabulation, it's not any of that. It's something different. And so that something different piece, which is around 5%, that's that's what parapsychology studies. Hmm. It studies these experiences and then we do what's called operationalize the experience like a t- telepathic experience we have to squeeze it into a design that that we could do in the laboratory and when you do that when you take a, a spontaneous raw experience and you squeeze it into a structure where you can study it under controlled conditions you're also squeezing some of the fun and the spookiness out of the out of telepathy or out of clairvoyance or whatever it is Uh, And so you generally don't get as results that are as uh, impressive as you do in the real world. Uh, But we also were able to view these events uh, under much more stringent conditions so that we know that it's not coincidence and we know that it's not misremembering. We know that it's not any of these other things. And if we're left over with that 5% of strangeness, then we can say, yeah, in the laboratory, we can reproduce to a highly statistically significant degree, the same kind of experience that is reported in the real world. That's how we know that in principle, that the various classes of psi phenomena actually do exist.
1: You know, I, I talk to a lot of scientists, and there's a group of scientists who think a lot of this stuff is, I think it's hooey, it's not real, It's it's garbage. Yeah. And then there's other scientists that, you know, believe that God is given them mathematical equations and they're okay with that.
0: There's a, there's a million reasons why people are different. In this particular case, uh, we've done a study looking at the genetics of people who are psychically talented from families who are t- psychically talented too versus people who have never reported anything psychic and nor does anyone in their family. So this is called a case control study in genetics. And so we got their DNA uh, and we analyzed it, and we found something that was surprising to us. Mm-hmm. We thought we would find that the very talented psychic people who come from families that are psychic would essentially be X-Men. that They would be mutants. <laughs> but we found the opposite. We found that the people who never report anything psychic are very unusual. They're the mutants.
1: Ah, interesting. And
0: And so... This kind of matches other surveys that we've done. We've, we did a survey among the general population with a subset of scientists and engineers and gave them a list of 25 experiences that people report. We didn't use any psychic terms. We just said, uh, do you ever feel that you're, you're mentally connected or you have me- mental impressions of somebody at a distance? Well, that would be telepathy, but we didn't use that word. Right. So 25 such experiences. And among the general population, above 90%, said that, yes, they had experienced something like that themselves, and on average about seven of the 25 different kinds of experiences. Well, that's that's a big majority. Most people have had at least one, and on average, seven of these kinds of experiences in their life. So then we looked at the subset of scientists and engineers, and we initially thought, well, it's going to be a lot lower because most scientists and engineers would never talk about this stuff. Or if they do talk about it, they'll dismiss it, as you said. What we found is, again, above 90%. And on average, eight of the 25 experiences. So one more than the general population. And so now the question is, well, why don't they talk about it? And the answer is uh, that if you go through a scientific curriculum, you learn very, very quickly, especially in the academic world, that you do not talk about this stuff. It's basically fight club. (laughs) You don't talk about fight club and you don't talk about experiences that challenge the prevailing status quo in science. Science doesn't know what to do with these kinds of experiences. And if you have them, you'll learn quickly. You better not talk about them because if you do, you won't remain in the academic world very long. And your other scientists are going to start shunning you, except for the few who are brave enough to actually admit that they, too, have had those experiences but they will only admit it after three or four beers.
1: <laughs> That's very interesting. So, it, you know, it's it's a very interesting uh, situation where people have experiences like that in the scientific community or engineers, and they don't admit them to other people or talk about them freely because, like you said, it's kind of like a fight club. You don't talk about things that are, that are thought to be unsolvable with the current scientific uh Situation we have now. So,
0: well, there's another reason. The other okay. reason is that uh, these kinds of phenomena are lumped in with what I call the great unwashed paranormal. It includes everything from Bigfoot and UFOs. UFO, yeah, mm-hmm. and and a whole other range, Loch Ness monster, you name it. So these are things, most of which are re- sightings, reportings of something strange that happened, that are not amenable, at least not very easily, amenable to scientific study. And so now we finally get evidence that, yeah, there's UFOs going around. We know nothing about what's happening because we can't study it in a scientific way. We can only study it at this point in an observational way. So some scientists would then sort of dismiss that. Say it's like stamp collecting, you know, you're taking pictures of things and that's about the best you can do. Well, I don't happen to agree with that perspective, but nevertheless, that's kind of what's taught in the academic world. Uh, People have all kinds of strange experiences, and they don't lend themselves to the way that science tends to study things. Of the great unwashed paranormal, there is one class which is quite different, psi phenomena, because we can use the, the tools and the techniques of science to go into the laboratory and actually look at these kinds of phenomena and see is there anything here or not. Well, most of the skeptics who just dismiss these things as impossible— have never done such experiments. And in most cases, they don't know anything about the actual literature. So th- what they're expressing then is a prejudice that they've either been taught uh, or that they learn after a while that in order to get along with other scientists, you need to say those words. So it's like uh, a, a social thing club. that people learn. Right. that this You talk about it in these terms and you never, ever admit that you not only are interested in such things, but they have happened to you too.
1: Now, if people experience things like ghosts or spirits or things like that, does that mean that these things are, are part of our, rela- our our shared reality, or are they things that are just manifested individually into our kind of uh, plane of reality?
0: Uh, we don't know. Okay. Right. So ghosts and spirits and thing, that sort of thing are extremely difficult to study under control conditions. So it's quite true that people will talk about these kinds of experiences. So I, I certainly don't dismiss anybody's experience. But when it comes to questions like what is this and what does it mean and right. all that, we, we don't have a scientific answer to it. So, so I'm you know, I I'm an empiricist at heart. I like to test right. stuff. If I can get a ghost to come in the lab and do stuff where, where we're able to see that it's actually not a psychic effect. To give you an example, we've worked with many mediums. What we're able to do with Medium is test whether or not they're able to get information about a a deceased loved one of a client. Could they do that under conditions where they don't know anything at all about the client and they know nothing at all about the deceased person? But can they still do whatever they do and connect with whatever and get information which turns out to be correct? The answer is yes. So they, they get information. So what is the difference between what a medium is doing and what a clairvoyant can do because clairvoyant does the same kind of task. And the answer is, it's really, really difficult to do, to know for certain that what a clairvoyant is doing and what a medium is doing is different because we all experience it in the world in different ways. And maybe a medium is a clairvoyant who whose impressions are perceived as speaking to a departed loved one. Right. Whereas some other clairvoyant who doesn't claim to be a medium might get visual imagery, might hear something, might even smell something. So there's many, many different ways that these kinds of information is experienced. And at this point, while uh, we know that what mediums do actually is accurate, uh, not all, of course, but talented ones really getting real information that's not cold reading or any other mundane explanation, uh, we don't know what it is that they're perceiving, and we don't know how they get that information.
1: Now, tell me about your book, Real Magic.
0: So I'll, I'll d- explain that by mentioning the, the four-book four sequence. So It's kind of a quartet. So the first book I wrote is called A Conscious Universe, and it was written to address an issue which I used to hear a lot, which is there is no evidence for these kinds of things. And having worked in the field at that point by about 20 years, I knew that that was simply incorrect. So I, I used a method called meta-analysis, which, is, uh, which was popular then, but now it's wildly popular because it's a way within uh, certainly all of the life sciences and other fields as well to look at uh, two things. One is, if somebody reports some kind of effect, is it repeatable? Is it a repeatable effect? That's, that's what makes something real in science. And if it is repeatable, are people tending to report something that is by chance or not chance? So many, many replications of studies have been done in parapsychology. And so I did meta-analyses of different classes of of effects. And so what you find when you do that is very strong evidence, both for repeatability and non-chance effects, for the basic classes of psychic phenomena. So there was no book at the time that talked about these kinds of analyses. So that's what that book was about, simply presenting Here's the evidence. Here's how we know that these things are true. Okay. The next question that people would say or ask after reading that book is, well, then how does it work? Because I didn't address that. So the next book was Entangled Minds, which was talking about uh, the possible physics. It was mostly about quantum mechanics. and I, I never said that quantum mechanics is the explanation because it's not. But what I did say is, if you don't look at my hand, look where I'm pointing i'm I'm saying that the direction that physics has moved from classical to quantum mechanics is pointing in the right direction. And if it turned out that classical we, we had never developed quantum mechanics, then it would be true that what we're talking about here would be incompatible with with what we know about the physical world. That's how it was usually dismissed. You know what you're saying is impossible because that's not the way the physical world works. Well, now we know it's not inconceivable. It's more and more plausible. That the that psychic phenomena, which have something to do with strange connections through space and time, is very, very similar to the strange connections in space and time of quantum mechanics. So we're moving in the right direction from our understanding of the physical world. That's what that book was about. The next question was: well, if it's not quantum mechanics, then how else do we even begin to think about this? And so I decided to take two ways of, of approaching that. One was Eastern esoteric traditions and the other was western esoteric traditions so if you go back far enough there was only one esoteric tradition kind of split historically so uh, my book super normal was focusing on yoga because within the, the traditional yogic literature there is a book called uh, the yoga sutras by a sage called patanjali who wrote this the the essence of yoga as it was understood a few thousand years ago and as part of that book he lists about 25 different psychic powers that you could develop as a result of meditation. And he lists recipes. You want to be telepathic, you do this. You want to become super strong, you do this. All of that. So the other parts of the book match what we currently understand to a large degree about the meditative procedure and what it does for the body and the mind. And so it would seem pretty odd to have this one-chapter in this book which is now talking about psychic abilities it's uh, sort of like shoved in like a comic book well no because we've asked people who started with learning to, to do meditation have they ever experienced things like strange synchronicities and telepathy and so on and about 75% of people say yes as a result of beginning meditation nowhere near the level of diligence that was done in the original form of yoga the answer is yeah, that people start experiencing these things spontaneously. So it's very likely that in, in thousands of years ago, that people already were well aware that when you get into deep meditation, you can do certain practices that will enhance these psychic abilities just naturally. So then I decided to tackle the Western esoteric tradition, which is magic. And in the Eastern tradition, these powers are called Siddhis, which is a Sanskrit term that means attainment and in the western world it's basically the same thing with different words so you would develop magical practices based on on a different understanding of reality so i mentioned before about idealism and all of the esoteric traditions both east and west known by words like neoplatonism and hermeticism and so on they all are based on idealism the the idea that consciousness is the fundamental aspect of reality not the physical world so real magic my last book real magic uh, is looking at these phenomena from a western perspective and then using the science that has been applied to these kinds of phenomena to show as i did for the yogic cities that uh, these effects are real many of the magical practices are overlaid with superstition with ritual and all the rest but the basic elements of what we would call magic is a real phenomenon.
1: It's a, it's a really a great read. I've, I've read the um, real magic, and it's, that's what really interested me. In talking to you, Dean Radin, Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Evan Weiss Show. Head over to iTunes to listen to previous shows. Questions? Email us at e at evanweiss.com.